can go ahead and go to Matthew 27. That's actually where we're going to start, so uh, make sure you get that one. And then uh, basically the last chapter in all the other Gospels, except for John, it's the last two chapters that deal with resurrection appearances. Uh, the date we've been looking at a lot was Good Friday. It was the 14th day of the first Jewish month. Uh, that's the day the crucifixion happened uh, at Golgotha. This is the site that I think is authentic uh, for Golgotha uh, with the little cave uh, to the left of the screen and then right next to that are the two eye sockets for what I believe was the skull that was on the cliff side there. Uh, and then off the screen just barely is where the garden tomb is located. And so that's what I think is probably the authentic one. Uh, we know that it had been used uh, by Christians throughout the centuries. Uh, they were actually burying bodies in there at some point because there was, a, there was like a church building nearby here. And so they would uh, use it to put bodies in. Uh, but uh, it's this picture that I want us to kind of focus on now, the entrance to that tomb. Uh, there was a stone we know that fit into a slot in front of that tomb. And so at the garden uh, tomb site, they have a little, uh, I think it's a replica that they've had made. Uh, and they've just got it on site to uh, show what it looks like. Um, by the miracle of clip and paste and all that stuff, here, I moved it over by it. So, there it is. So, now it's ready to go uh, for our uh, purposes this morning. So, this is what we know. We know that they took Jesus' body off the cross without enough time to properly prepare it on Friday before uh, sunset. Uh, so they took the body, they put it on uh, this cloth. Uh, remember, the cloth is really long, so they would have had the bottom piece already laying on the platform inside the tomb. They would have put the body on top of that and then folded it, the other end, up and over it um, with the head at the fold point. And then uh, they would have put their material, um, uh, the smelly things, about a 75 pounds worth of things, uh, inside there. And then they would have folded up the little corners and edges and then put some wrapping um, um, strips around that to hold it in place. Uh, because they wanted to make sure that the body didn't decay too much, you know, too smelly, before they got back uh, on, early on Sunday morning so that they can come and properly wash the body, properly do the prayers, properly anoint and, and prepare it uh, for putting it down inside the box uh, and to leave it there for a year because that was the tradition back at this time. Now, it's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It's brand new. It's never been used. Uh, so Jesus' body is the only one sitting on the preparation top uh, in here as they finish up. And we know that Joseph and Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin, were the gentlemen that were there 
uh, overseeing the preparation of the body. John, the uh, apostle, uh, who wrote the gospel, who is the um, cousin of Jesus. He's there. We know that uh, among the ladies, we've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's also described as being Mary, the mother of James, as in the author of the book of James. Mary, the mother of Joseph, Jr. Mary, the mother of, uh, of Judas. Uh, the only one that's missing, apparently, in the story is... Simon, for some reason. I'm not sure why he isn't mentioned of the four boys. Uh, but uh, that's clearly uh, mom. So she's there and watches all this. Uh, Aunt Salome is there. Jesus' Aunt Salome. That'd be the mom of James and John uh, and the sister of Mary. Uh, apparently, Susanna's there uh, and Joanna and other ladies from Galilee. Mary Magdalene is there as well. So all of them have been in this tomb at some point, and they have seen the body laying on the top of a little platform, all wrapped up now. They've cried over it. They've said their prayers as much as they can. And then, because it's very close to sunset now, they go out and they roll the tomb in place. Now, I can't figure out how to make the stone roll, so I slid it, okay? And so the stone is in front of the tomb now. That will keep any larger scavengers from getting in there and starting to dig at a dead body. Uh, uh, and it'll keep um, stupid people from trying to cause too much trouble because this stone is big and it's going to take multiple people, multiple adult men with lots of muscles in order to scoot it back again because it... Once it rolls into place, it locks. There's like a divot in the, in the little uh, gutter. And so once you get it into that place, it's like plunk, and then it's there. And it's going to take extra muscle power to get it back and up out of that divot in order to move it to the side. And that's the way the things set as the sun goes down. All the people have now gone back to wherever it is they're staying, uh, we know that the ladies, wherever it is they're staying at, uh, they started prepping the um, materials that they would need for Sunday morning before the sun got down. Uh, and then they rested on the Sabbath day. That's where we're at in uh, Matthew 27, 62. And I hurried this when we closed up last week, so that's why I'm back here again. So we are now on the seventh day of the week, which is the 15th day of the first Jewish month in this particular year. Um, and the Sabbath begins at sunset, but it goes all the way till sunset the next day. Uh, so that means all day Saturday is a normal business day for Pontius Pilate. And so he receives a visit um, from messengers of the Sanhedrin. Uh, verse number 62 of Matthew 27. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation day. Now, preparation day, that's the normal day for Friday. Uh, so, the day after would be the Sabbath or, for our purposes, Saturday. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. 
So they probably did the exact same thing they did uh, the day before for the trial. They probably came to the front entrance of the Tower of Antonia and said, we need to talk to Pilate. They can't go in because it's the Sabbath day. They don't want to be rendered unclean. And so they wait for him to come out. He probably comes out and sits on that seat out in front of the front gate of the Antonia Tower, uh, same place where he condemned Jesus, and he meets with them. And so this is what they say. Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. So they have inside information. Now, that's something that Jesus has only been saying openly to his 12 apostles. So how in the world did they find out about it? Think for a moment. Judas. Very good. They had a betrayer who, when he came to them, included this little nugget of information. Yeah, he's been talking to us about dying and then he keeps talking about this idea that he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. And Judas apparently did not believe that at this point. He, he was a um, fallen away person. Uh, he's, he's dead, by the way. Remember that? His body is hanging right now as this little incident happens. It's hanging from a tree down on the south side of town. Uh, so... Uh, they said, therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, basically until the third day is finished. Because you see, if the body stays into the grave until after the third day is over, then Jesus' prophecy can't be true. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Now, <laughs> what is it we know that they don't know about the disciples? They don't believe in the resurrection at this point. Uh, do you think any of them were even imagining, hey, I got an idea. Let's go and take the body out of the tomb, run away with it, and then we'll pretend that he resurrected from the dead. Do you think any of them had said that to one another? No. Not a single one of them had that thought in their head. Uh, but uh, these guys, they're imagining the worst. Uh, so Pilate listens to this, and he gets to thinking about it, apparently, and realizes, you know, yeah, that would probably be a bad idea. We, we don't need any false stories going around about this guy back from the dead. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Now, some people get confused by that and think that that means, well, you've got your own guard. Go put a guard on the tomb. No. He is saying, I concur. Yes, you may have Roman soldiers. I will send a unit. Uh, and it's important that they are Roman soldiers because they would be independent on this matter. Uh, so we need independent witnesses. Now, that's going to work against the council a little bit, uh, really big time. Uh, so <clears throat> make it as secure as you know how. And they went 
and they made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Uh, so the Sanhedrin members, being very careful not to touch the tomb and not to be touched by the Roman soldiers, because you know this is the Sabbath day, it's the Sabbath day of Passover week, so they don't want to be contaminated by ceremonial uncleanliness. So they're going to be very, very careful. They all go out together to the tomb, which is closed, right? So they open it back up. The soldiers do it. The soldiers probably go in, pat around on the body. Yeah, there's a body in there. Uh, they, uh, the Sanhedrin members, they can stand at the entrance. They can look in there and see. They can see the bodies in there. So everybody is positive the body is exactly where it needs to be. It hasn't been stolen yet. Then they roll the stone back into place, put some sort of sealing mechanism. Now, the sealing mechanism is not to prevent the stone being moved. It's to indicate if the stone has been moved, right? All of us are aware of that, and uh, we don't know exactly how they would do it, but it, it could be a, a method of putting a chain across and putting lead uh, sealing uh, in, uh, markers on both sides and putting a, a signet seal in there. Whatever it is, they know the tomb is now sealed after their inspection. Uh, and then, more than likely, the details are not in the text here, but we do know that when the crucifixion happened, there were how many soldiers on duty? Four. How do we know that? They divided the clothing into four pieces. So there were four soldiers and one centurion. That's the smallest sort of detail that you can get in the Roman army, other than individual soldiers. Uh, so. That will suffice if you've got something going on that's less than 12 hours or less than eight hours, which the crucifixion, if it had gone on longer, they would have had a new detail crew come in and replace them. Uh, but if you're off-site, like they are here, they're in a garden cemetery area, they're going to be able, they're going to need to be able to camp out there. So they're going to bring enough soldiers to mount a 24-hour guard duty. So I'm guessing minimum that they probably brought 16. And so that way they've always got at least four guys on active duty and the others are either resting or just at ease. But they're always in the area. So that if something starts to pop, then uh, you can uh, wake everybody up and get a quick response. Now, these guys are armed. Remember, I didn't grab the picture, but you remember what Roman soldiers look like. Uh, they have got body armor, and they've got shields, and they've got uh, throwing spears. Uh, they've got... Uh, one big sword and one smaller sword, we'd call it a big combat knife or a dagger, uh, and uh, they are professionals. Uh, even the newest ones, even the ones that have only been probably soldiers for a year or so, they go through regular combat training. 
And so there is no way in the world that a group of fishermen and tax collectors and con construction workers or whatever it is that the other apostles did, there's no way in the world even 12 guys or even, oh, let's just make it 100 guys of that sort of background could take on 16 Roman soldiers and expect to survive. They would be outmatched. And so that's what's going on at the tomb, is to make sure no one even thinks about coming and taking the body. Now, who knows about this garden? Only the Sanhedrin and the Romans that are involved in it. Do the ladies know about it? No. Why would they? They're hanging out on uh, Sabbath day, wherever it is that they're at. Do the apostles know about it? No. No reason for them to know about it either because they're doing their Sabbath day. Plus, what are the apostles pretty much doing according to every, of the, every one of the scriptures uh, regarding this time? They're kind of hanging out in the upper room, locked behind doors, hiding because they're concerned for their own lives. Uh, so that's the way that Matthew ends the story of uh, the stone being in place with a guard on it. And then that's going to bring us then to the 16th day of the first Jewish month, which is this, the first day of the week now. Now it starts Saturday night when the sun goes down. The Sabbath day is over. Uh, but it's dark, right? So they, they don't want to go off to the tomb and finish the funeral then because it's dark. So nobody's heading out that direction tonight. But they will do this. Uh, when, the, when the sun goes down on Sabbath evening, all the little Jewish shops pop back open for several hours. Uh, and uh, Jewish people start getting together for their post-Sabbath meals. Sat uh, uh, excuse me. Um, Saturday night is a big social event in Jewish circles. And so things are starting to hop again around Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, it says this. When the Sabbath was over, so that's Saturday night at sunset, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, that's Jesus' mom, Mary, and Salome, that's her sister, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So the shops have just popped back open, so they go out and say, let's get what we need, funeral supplies. Does that all make sense, everybody? Uh, and then uh, when it's bedtime, whatever time that is on this particular night, uh, they all go to bed with the intention of waking up very early when it's still dark because their intention is to arrive uh, at the tomb right around dawn, meaning when the sun pops up on the horizon. Now, is it light before sunrise? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it, those of you that are up well before sunrise, you know that it starts getting light about mm, 40 minutes before that, depending on what time of year it is. And so they are going to have no problem getting dressed and starting on their walk across town. Now, where are they? Uh, well, I didn't put my map in the right spot, so we won't worry about that. Uh, they are, no matter where they're at, they're within a couple of miles of the tomb. Because some of them might be staying out on the Mount of Olives at Bethany. Now, Bethany is only a mile and a half from the Temple Mount. So that means it's probably less than two miles from the garden. The upper room, where we know the apostles are at, they're down on the south side of town, down in the rich part of town. They are probably half a mile to three quarters of a mile away. So nobody's very far away from the tomb area, are they? How long would it take you to walk two miles? Yeah. 30 to 45 minutes probably for most of you. It's no big deal. Yeah, it depends on the terrain. For them, it's all on paved stones. So it's all easy stuff. Plus, they walk all the time. No big deal to them. Yeah, so uh, there's a gradient that goes up a little bit when you go through the Kidron Valley. Who cares if you're used to walking? So they probably are out the door while it's still dark, which is exactly what it starts saying in our Gospels. Uh, let's go to Luke 24. Luke 24, 1. On the first day of the week, what's the first day of the week? Sunday, we call it, right? At early dawn. Now that means the time when it starts barely getting light up until the sun comes up. So that's that time frame that it's talking about. They came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. So it tells us roughly what it was like for them making the trip. John chapter 20, verse number 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Now, that means she started out while it was still dark. Got it? And the timing is they want to get there as the sun rises because it'll make it easier to do their work inside the tomb. Correct? Because who wants to bring like a little lamp inside the tomb in order to see things by? It'd be a lot easier if you got light kind of coming in. Um, Matthew 27, 1. Excuse me, 28, 1. Now, after the Sabbath, what day is after the Sabbath? Sunday, the first day of the week. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. So it's heading toward dawn on the first day of the week, right? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Okay, so now we understand. 
It's as this is the way Mark puts it very early on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So they start on the way while it's still dark, but it's starting to get light. They've got 30 to 45 minute walk, depending on where they're going from. And their timing is, let's get there right when the sun comes up, because that's going to make our life a lot easier. Something else happens before any of that. And only Matthew tells this. Matthew 28, 2. Yes, sir. We do not understand why Matthew is the only one that tells the story of the guards. Um, it may be that he had a special interest in it to try to help the people understand that there is a lie that's going to be uh, promoted uh, by the administration. And he wants people to understand that that, that lie doesn't match the information that came out from the guards themselves. So I, I don't know. It's one of those things where you wonder, why is it the go this particular gospel writer is the only one that tells this story? And you can only guess it most of the time. Sure. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I wouldn't use the word more accurate for his, his information. Uh, but I would go with the idea that he does seem to be more highly educated than the others and may have been keeping a much more detailed account of everything that was going on. Uh, we know that he is the first of the gospel writers to write. Uh, according to the traditions, he wrote within about... 13 or 14 years after the events, uh, because he wanted the Jewish people, because that's who he wrote to, to understand this is the story, and this story fulfills scripture. And so he very often points how things were fulfilled. Uh, and so I don't, he may have also had an inside track with some of the information going on, you know, the, the conversations with Pilate. He might have had an inside source. Honestly. That's true. He was one of the ones that mentions the earthquake big time and the breaking open of the tombs and all of that. Yep. And also, you may, they may have heard, you know, hey, I heard there was a Roman guard out there watching, and they said that the body was stolen. And so Matthew goes, no, you didn't quite hear the whole story, did you? Let me tell you the whole story about that. Yeah. Yeah, could very well be. Yes. Mark is not an eyewitness to any of these things. Uh, he's getting his information, a lot of it, from the Apostle Paul. Uh, 
but also probably from his relatives. John Mark is actually born and raised in Jerusalem. Oh, excuse me. Well, he, de he uh, Peter. I didn't. I said Paul, didn't I? But from Peter, who was there, uh, and but also he could have gotten it from family members that were eyewitnesses to it. And then who was the other gospel writer you asked? Luke. Luke is the one that's with John or with uh, Paul, and he does eyewitnesses while Paul is cooling his heels in palace arrest uh, down on the coast. Yep. All right, so Matthew 28, 2. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. This is a second earthquake. The first earthquake took place during the death of Jesus, which popped open a whole bunch of tombs. Well, this is the earthquake that happened when Jesus' tomb opened. Uh, it says, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now, my imagination just totally goes wild on this whole thing. Now, I wish I could have had an angel do all this stuff. But um, first of all, what type of angel was it? Because we got some pretty scary looking angels. Uh, I mean, the, the Kerubim have four faces and four wings, and sometimes they carry swords and things. And so if one of those, like, just suddenly is coming down during the middle of an earthquake while the, the soldiers are, like, bouncing around on the ground, you know, and the guys that are asleep, they're waking up, and they're like, what's going on? It's another one of those earthquakes from a couple of days ago. And they're, like, talking about And then suddenly down comes this angelic figure in front of them, and I, I, I would imagine he'd show off a little bit and go, pink, just knock the stone backwards, uh, with a little thinking, maybe he'd use his pinky. Move it backward, because remember, it takes several guys you know, to move this stone anyway. And so the angel has no problem popping the stone open. And then to really add insult to the whole thing, he then goes, Pink, sets up on it. Can we add a little other one? Maybe he goes, boo. <laughs> now, what happens? It says, his appearance was like lightning. So he is glowing with the glory of God. His clothing is white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now that is a euphemism for they fainted dead away. Every last one of them. Now what would it take for 16 Delta Force guys to faint That's, that's the context you should put this in. How scared would they have to be in order to faint dead away? That's what just happened to him. Uh, and um, that's the end that Matthew tells of this encounter of the angel with the guards. Now, he doesn't tell the next part, which is obvious from other passages. He jumps right straight to the woman's story. And that is going to be this, that basically uh, those guys would have eventually revived from being passed out, saw the stone rolled back, and the tomb now has just the collapsed clothing in it. 
The clothing was not removed. It's just like a cocoon that has kind of flattened out. And once they saw that, that freaked them out, and they left. Uh, now, um, we will jump down to verse number 11, because we do want to tell the next part of their story, since we're talking about them before we close up today at some point. It says, while they were on their way, I'm talking about the women, which we'll be talking about next, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. So the guard that had passed out and then revived and saw the cocoon was empty and then panicked and ran away. Some of them, not all of them, decide we need to go and talk to the chief priests about this. Now, why didn't they go to Pilate? They are afraid because to lose your prisoner or your charge is a capital crime for soldiers. It will not do you any good to say, sir, I don't know what it was, but this gigantic glowing entity showed up and we all passed out and when we woke up, the body that we were supposed to keep safe was gone. Will that be acceptable? No, they will all be executed. That's the order, standing order. You let your, your prisoner get away, you're a dead man. And often you'll end up being abused before that happens because you've basically shamed the service by letting that happen. So they decide, at least a couple of them, we need to go talk to the chief priest about this. And so they, um, they reported to the chief priest all that happened. What had happened? The body is gone, but not just that. What else would they have told them? Earth, you remember that earthquake that happened just a few minutes ago? The, the stone got rolled back by a glowing entity. We passed out. When we woke up, just the grave clothes were left. The body's gone. So they reported a miracle to the Sanhedrin members. Now, is that going to pass muster with them? No, that is not going to work. Because that goes against the whole thing they need to uphold, which is that Jesus was a troublemaker who was properly killed, and no, he is not coming back. Uh, so when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, so they basically had an emergency Sanhedrin meeting on Sunday morning. Well before church. <laughs> now, I'm curious as to whether or not Nicodemus and, uh, and Joseph got invited. I'm thinking they might not have. But, so they consulted together, which means they came up with a plan. Here's their plan. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers 
So they gave them big bucks, big denarii. Uh, and so if there's like 16 of them, they got to make sure all 16 of them are well paid. And they said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, do you see a flaw in this cover story? Yeah, you are still saying I as a Roman soldier was derelict of my duty. I fell asleep on watch. And not just me, my buddy, my other buddy, the other buddy, all of the buddies. All of us fell asleep. Plus, if you're asleep, how would you know what happened to the body? Well, we assumed that while we were asleep, the, those 12 apostles must have come over and very quietly rolled the stone back and unwrapped the body, took the body, rewrapped the cocoon package. This, this whole story is like falling apart really fast, right? Um, and then, they, of course, the, the Sanhedrin, they've lived with this relationship with Romans for a long time, so they know Roman rules and procedures. So I said, if this story should come to the governor's ears, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. Chill. Don't worry. If Pilate gets wind of this cover story, we'll make things right with him and you'll be good. Now, immediately, if you were a Roman soldier, what would you think about that? You're, you're going to throw me under the bus the first chance you get. There ain't no way in the world that you're going to cover for us. Uh, so this is just trouble all the way around. Um, but it says that they went ahead and took the money, because what else are they going to do? And they did as they were instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. And so here's the, maybe the exact reason why Matthew includes this, is because it's being talked about by Jews to this day. And he's writing this 15 years later or so. We don't know what happened to the soldiers other than the story did get out of what they'd seen. So I'm guessing they didn't keep their mouth shut. Now, honestly, would you keep your mouth shut about something like that? I wouldn't. I, yeah, it's the first person you told. You've got to make sure it's somebody very special that you talk to. Uh, <laughs> once, once I get executed. Yeah, I'm sure they upheld the story in some venues, and in other venues they must have told the real story, because it got out. And Matthew knows about it. Uh, and so that's, that's the first big lie that gets told about the resurrection being fraudulent. And it... It doesn't hold even a tiny bit of water. It is so full of holes, it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, see, there's just not, other than that one little blurb, that's it. 
Yeah, we don't, and again, I think we might have assumed a whole bunch of dead bodies came back to life when it may have only been a handful. Because remember, when we went through that account, it's, it's pretty vague. It says, and on, and after Jesus' resurrection, they came into the city. It says that graves were popped open by the Friday earthquake, and some of the saints were resurrected and came into the city. And so that, that resurrection of those saints happened on this day, at this time. But how many? Yeah, well, when it says saints, it means only believers of some sort. So uh, it could be the disciples of Jesus who had died. I, th I honestly think it was recently. Uh, were resurrected. Now, some people think that there was like this over overflowing effect of the resurrection. You know, almost like this big shock wave that goes out, and only a few people in the radius of that shock wave near the tomb of Jesus were, were resurrected. Now, that would be interesting if that's how it happened, but we don't know. All we know is that some people saw these resurrected saints after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, as we close today, I'm going to ask you a question. Why was the stone rolled away? Yeah, it's so that people can get into the empty tomb. It's not so Jesus can get out. Jesus had already evaporated from inside the cocoon and reconstituted outside the cocoon. You'll notice that he's not anywhere to be seen in the story of the soldiers, is he? The soldiers don't see him. So he's apparently already gone because all they saw was the collapsed grave clothes because they knew he was gone because that's what they reported. And, that, and that's, that's where I'm going to close up is the women show up at the tomb minutes after the soldiers have revived and run away. So they, the women don't know anything about the soldiers. They don't know anything about the watch. Uh, and how do we know that? Because in Mark 16.3, this is what they're conversing about as they come around the corner. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? If they had known about the soldiers, that wouldn't have been an issue because they would have simply said, sirs, would you please roll the stone open? We need to finish the funeral preparations. They wouldn't have worried about it. All they knew was there was a closed tomb, and they hadn't thought when they started out this morning, oh my goodness, who's going to roll that stone back? We never thought about that. We should have made arrangements for some braver guys to come with us to roll it back. Because apparently, as many women as there are here, like probably half a dozen, that's not going to be sufficient to roll this stone out of its little divot lock. They don't have enough muscle power. 
it never gives a specific number. It only names certain ones and usually gives a, a generic overall idea that there were more women not named. And so it's, it's again, it's the whole thing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Each of them have their own focus that they're doing. And so some of them name certain women, others name other women, others just name generic women, women, women who were with him in Galilee. So it's, it's not a disparity. It's more of this idea of multiple witnesses focused on different things. You know, when a traffic accident happens, one of the things that the patrolmen always have fun with is the fact that everybody saw something slightly differently. I'm, I'm sh Deb and I saw a car yesterday that would really have confused if it had been in an accident because it was black on one side and green on the other. So if, if uh, people on one side of the car saw the accident, what would they have reported? It was a black car. People on the other side, it was a green car. What's with the contradiction? It wasn't a contradiction. They had different angles on the exact same accident. That's the way it is with the Gospels. You've, you've got no contradictions anywhere in this. I've been studying it for decades. There's no contradictions here. It's just people seeing things from different angles. That's it. All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel story and about the resurrection. And I thank you that Christ is not there. He's risen, just as he said. And we thank you for the ladies who were the first ones on the scene that actually started believing. And uh, we thank you for the apostles who eventually caught up with that uh, and uh, became the ones that made sure the gospel went into the world. And here we are, almost a couple of millennia later. Help us, Father, to believe it and to pass it on to those that need to hear it. Help us now to have a great worship service. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.